Welcome, everybody, to the first episode of A Cut Above the Rest. I am sitting here today with call sign White Light, otherwise known as Whitey by his team guys. Whitey is a Green Beret, uh, part of First and Third Group Special Forces. And today we'll be discussing Afghanistan, his time there, his thoughts on the current status, uh, and some other things as well. So my first question for Whitey will be, what was it like? first entering Afghanistan when the war started? Well, I was uh, looking forward to going there and uh, was fired up from the uh, 9-11 incident in New York. As I uh, grew up in New York City, took that hit kind of personal. But uh, the place was uh, pretty worn out, best I can describe it. They'd been slinging lead in Afghanistan against the Northern Alliance, or the Northern Alliance moved on them to get them out of uh, Afghanistan, get them into Pakistan. So there were rocket attacks by uh, both sides on the on the city to dislodge the other side. And, and the, the scars of that were real evident when you go through uh, Kabul. And uh, it, it was definitely a third world country. Uh, and although they had some, some infrastructure uh, localized in uh, Kabul, it, it was worn down, run down. It had been in neglect for quite a while. And the Russians went in there. They tried to uh, modernize it, and that was a, a, a fatal, futile uh, effort because the uh, the mentality of the Afghans there were they're very tribal. They're not very uh, global, uh, which is in their favor. But uh, a lot of the concepts, ideas, and uh, methods that were being used by coalition forces were not acceptable to the Afghans because it clashed with their, their belief system, with their religion, with their sense of uh, family and obligation to to their tribe, whatever their tribe was. So it was a little, uh, a little dismayed at the, uh, the just un, unfunctioning, non-functioning society. You temper that with a little like they've had it rough and uh, I mean, the weather's brutal in the winter and in the summer. They've been slinging lead for years. And uh, it just seemed like this, when we got there, there was a lot seemingly that could be done to move them down the road to modernization. But again, the more you got to know these people, the more you dealt with them, and we dealt with them every day, it was uh, evident that they wanted nothing to do with a lot of what was being offered to them. So, yeah, it's crazy. What was the selection process like when deciding who would protect President Karzai? And what were your personal opinions on President Karzai himself? Well, the uh, SEAL Team 6 initially had the uh, protection detail for Karzai. And, uh, again, there's a lot of politics involved in in any of these operations that uh, go above and beyond the individual skill level. A lot of decisions are made for you know, publicity purposes and foreign and, and domestic consumption by the uh, people who can read. And uh, there was an incident where uh, there was an attempted assassination of uh, President Karzai. And in the response to that, one of the uh, team guys inadvertently killed one of Karzai's best buddies. So there was a lot of dust kicking up over that. So they said, we're going to take the military presence uh, away from that because it looks like a dictatorship. And then they, we came in 
and it came in under the uh, Department of State control. And the uh, the evaluation system was uh, <laughs> was it was fairly thorough. Um, you had to as a shooting portion, could you shoot? You know, were you physically fit? We had a, a shrink test. Uh, talked to a psychiatrist to see if you're still nuts. And many of us were still nuts, but uh, passed it anyway. Not a problem. And they drew from all services: all SEALs, recon marines. Army Rangers, Special Forces, so it was broad spectrum skill set. The uh, team was 48 men, and uh, we had a, I won't leave the Air Force out, we had a, a JTAC in there too, uh, from the SDS. I think it was 21 or 21 SDS, I don't remember. But uh, everybody was represented there, and uh, it was broken down into, uh, into sections. I was in the uh, counter-assault team, the CAT team. They had the guys that walked the diamond, and that was uh, some SF guys, some Delta guys, and uh, I think there was a couple of SEALs in there as well. But they were the immediate protection around him. Uh, the CAT team, we, our job was to go to threat. When there's a threat, uh, we go out there. And then they had, like, an advance and a driving team. They would uh, advance any venue he was going to, and they'd lock down the entire city. Uh, that was pretty impressive uh, because, the, again, the place was, a lot of it was in rubble. Just uh, many places to hide, many places to make an attempt. Given the uh, skill set level uh, that was collective, uh, he uh, never got the. And those attempts when I was there, there was, I think it was four attempts on him, and uh, they were all failed. So when I left to go to Iraq, he was still breathing. <laughs> I was very happy about that. Because <laughs> that's, you don't want that on your resume. <laughs> Yeah, you the guys with the yeah, you the guys with the kill cars. I yeah, no, that's that's not good. But uh, had I liked the guy, I I I did like him. I personally liked him. I thought he was a likable individual, and I believe. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of talk. His brother was corrupt, and but corruption permeates that part of the world. It really does because it's their view is not corruption. They don't see any of this stuff as corruption. They just see it as a, a method to survive and and uh retain power and gain power and it's just a different dynamic than what we used to in the states but uh, went to events with the guy and uh, he was a uh, i think he had the best uh, wishes for his country and he did the best he could to move him forward but again you're dealing with tribalism uh, in the extreme out there along with the religion which i don't agree with for a second I believe that uh, it's a fascist ide- ideology, and uh, they follow it, and they believe it, and they're, they're willing to die for it, and they do. And uh, can't argue with someone that has those kinds of core core values. They want to die for their beliefs. That's you know, there's other ways to look at it. Like their life sucks so bad that they think they're going to get those seventy-one virgins. Um, they don't realize they're going to be guys, but that's that's a different subject. But they they believe it that deeply that they're willing to uh, walk a drive a V bid to a to a checkpoint detonate it uh, going with a vest detonate it going shooting and knowing they're not coming out you know you have to have a certain level of respect for that that kind of determination but uh, I thought Karzai was okay you know now his uh, people that followed in in his office were 
people I was not familiar with. When I left, uh, they were about to turn over the the uh, KPD to the Afghans. And I was very hesitant about being involved in that. It just seemed like risky business that uh, for for reasons, and some of you guys listen to this, I've been over there. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you know what the ANA is like and the uh, ANP and all those cats there. Uh, you're dealing with a, uh, a literacy issue. I think 92 plus percent, according to the agency, is uh, the literacy rate over there for the entire population. There are pockets that are more literate, you know, uh, but as far as conveying ideas and passing instructions and writing reports, and it, it, you just don't have that kind of thoroughness that you'd like to get when you go from uh, ville to ville and check out what's going on determine threat possibilities and whatnot but yeah leaving that place was uh, was good i went to, to iraq after that for a couple of years and then uh, was called back to uh to work for dod and uh, that was i was more that was a, a more comfortable zone for me uh, than uh, than uh, working for oga because that was yeah a little bit uh, you know <laughs> who's in charge here <laughs> Why am I really doing this? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's my take on Karzai in, in Afghanistan. Initial uh, initial exposure to Afghanistan. What was the most intense and or sketchy firefight slash situation that you were in in Afghanistan? Well, you're you're. There's a couple different ways to look at this. It's you're. You always fall back on your training, and if you are well trained, you know, short of a bad luck day, you kind of embrace the moment. You embrace the the moment, and uh, what gives you the confidence is uh, the people you're with. They're highly trained individuals. They they don't choke. They know exactly what to do. They can assess the situation rapidly and respond to it. So, uh, going to some of these uh, these areas, we worked out of a well, they just shut Bagram down, which is a giant fucking mistake. But we'd go to Bagram to submit reports, do AARs, uh, brief backs, whatnot, uh, refit, rearm, and then move out again. So most of my stuff was done working out of COPS, the combat outpost, not the FOBs, the forward operating bases. Uh, you'd go there for, you know, either medical, you know, re-up on your meds if you needed them or get checked out by the docs. <laughs> you avoided like the plague. <laughs> um, you'd fly in, you'd do your stuff, uh, you replace broken equipment, get it reissued. Go to Siege Soto, do a, a brief, talk to the people that are out there, get information that's coming in from all sources, and, and then take on your next mission, and then uh, fly away to that place, and then you, you know, fly in then you'd have uh, vehicles on station out there and you'd either do a dismounted patrol or you'd, you'd move through uh, presence patrol or you would go to a specific area for work off the JPEL list so it was uh, always interesting because the all the FOBs and all the cops and all all the all those places were established by the Russians during their tenure in uh, in Afghanistan so the uh <laughs> 
<laughs> the Afghans knew all the fighting positions. They knew all the routes in and out. They knew the dead ends. They knew all the stuff. And, the, and they, they used it to their advantage uh, very often. What they didn't have was close air support. And that's what we did have. So when, uh, you know, Larry Lunchmeat would open up with a belt-fed machine gun and give his position away, you know, there'd be, there'd be return fire. And as soon as that's happening, JTAC would be on the, on the, on the comms calling in, whatever was available. Uh, sometimes there was, there was nothing available right away because they're engaged some other place. So there's a couple of engagements where you're, <laughs> come on, come on, come on. But uh, for the most part, the air support was, was the key to victory for a lot of our stuff because we didn't have all those fighting positions. And, and they were always in the high ground, you know. They, they never found them downhill. They were always uphill, which is a real, real pain in the ass. You know? But they've been fighting since, uh, oh shit, the beginning of time. I think Alexander the Great went through there in 328 or 325 or something like that. And uh, he tried to unify them through marriage. He married one of the Persian women. I don't have the full story on names and specific stuff, but the, the one over the world view is that he tried his best. And that guy was a he was a, a genius, tactician. And, uh, that didn't work. And uh, then the Genghis Khan came through there and smoked a lot of people. And that didn't work. And uh, I mean, the list is on and on. The, the Brits are in there. They got their asses kicked. The Russians are in there, as you well know from, from history, because it's not that long ago that they uh, unassed the place. And then uh, we came in there, and we're leaving. Uh, <laughs> with their tail between our legs. Thanks, Uncle Joe, jerk. And uh, yeah, there's a history of that stuff. So all these points of contention, all these these tactical uh, ambush sites are, are well known to the Taliban. So when they see a convoy coming to uh, spread the good word or build a schoolhouse or do something, uh, you know, it, uh, they're ready for it. Downside is that because of the politics of the Department of State, they get a... NGOs involved in things. They all the all the good idea fairies show up, and the, the good goody goodies come out, and they go, "Let's build these people a schoolhouse." Uh, into a couple of the schoolhouses, there's no desks in them, there's no chairs in them, there's nothing in them, there's no people in them. So he asked the village elder, "Hey, how come you're not using this thing?" Uh, the Taliban said, "They'll kill us if we use it." Okay, but they continued building these things for years. <laughs> there was even a hotel being built across from the embassy uh, that gave uh, the workers clear shots into the embassy because it, the building was taller than the, than the embassy was so they could monitor everything going in and out and on and get schedules. And it was just, you know, they, I think they stopped that building of that thing. But uh, when they left there, they were still building it. But uh, I think they pulled the plug on it. But you can see the waste that's going on the Military-industrial complex was just reeking in all kinds of money over that, you know. It's the old adage, yeah, it dropped a $1,000 bomb on a $50 bridge. Um, yeah, that was bomb it again, make sure it's, uh, it's down. So much waste going over there. People had good intentions. I don't, I don't take that from them, but, boy, the results were just absolutely flat, flat, you know. Uh, <laughs> what do you mind said? What's, what's your most uh, vivid recollection of Afghanistan? And I said, well, the first time I took Route Violet up to Jalalabad, and I 
interrupt. There's there were routes in in, in out of Kabul that are all named. They have different names. Uh, they use colors. They use cities. They use all kinds of shit. But their route white was that street that goes from uh, the embassy right up into the airport, and then Route Violet was an offshoot to the east of that that would take you up to Jalalabad. So we're driving there to go up to Jalalabad for something. Don't remember what it was at this point, but. We hit these potholes because that's where they detonate a lot of D-bids and there's a lot of mortar fire and rocket fire and, you know, just a lot of, a lot of death and destruction up there. And we hit these potholes and that was uh, 2002. And, uh, you know, when I left there, finally left the place in 2012, I was on the way from Jalalabad back to Kabul to fly out. And, uh, the same potholes were there, <laughs> you know. They couldn't fix the potholes on one of their main uh, resupply lines. So to expect a, a functioning central government to operate that country, given the, the terrain itself, uh, it, it just, you know, the folks there, uh, the higher levels, they've all been uh, you know, Yale, Harvard educated, and uh, they're fucking stupid. Because all of us wrote reports and endless debriefs and endless comments and endless observations that said this, we need to get out of here. This is, leave it to the warlords. But that didn't sell. That wasn't a selling point because somebody wanted to get their OER checked. And uh, it just went on and on and on. And no change. No, No change whatsoever. And now, you can take a look at it now. Pathetic. So obviously Afghanistan has very complicated and diverse topography and political geography. What is your opinion on the best way that we could divide Afghanistan to where it is not as, I don't want to say it's tribal, it'll always be tribal, but like you said earlier, there's no way for one government to rule over all of Afghanistan due to like you said, uh, geographic regions being, you know, physically far away from each other, um, different re- uh, religious ideologies, sometimes different languages, they can't communicate. Um, so what would you think is the best way to divide that country up? Well, there's a, an opportunity to do that early on, and that was brought up too. But uh, again, you know, people have their own goals for fame and fortune, and a lot of that was blown away because, of course, uh, the good idea fairy visited them and they thought they had an answer to this. You know, apparently for all their education, they never studied uh, the history of the country, much less spend time outside the wire. And, uh, we flew from, uh, from where the hell did we fly from? Well, we flew from, we went up to Bagram. We flew from Bagram up to, uh, Herat. We went to Herat. Now we've been used to, to Kabul for the big city and Jabad, which is, you know, it's, a lot of people, same broke dick stuff. And uh, when we got to Herat, uh, vehicles waiting for us. They, they picked us up. They drove us from the airport over to the governor's palace. And uh, the drive-in, and it was, a, it was a small contingent of U.S. Uh, Army there. So we stopped in on them first to get some, some chow and whatever and uh, get a, any updates on any activities going on, blah, blah, blah. So our observations of, for, of Herat were, wow. People are well-dressed, no beggars on the street, no homeless. Um, the stores that we saw, 
all were fully stocked. The the when people moving in vehicles, there's they had stop lights there, which people actually observed. It, it was just a, a completely different place than Kabul. And when I talked to some of the security guys, the governor's security guy said, "Hey, can you explain this to me?" I said, "We just came from Kabul. What a shithole!" And blah blah blah. And he says, "Yeah." He said, "Well, uh, the con here is uh, he runs it. How it works is that if you misbehave here, he sends his boys down and you disappear. So there's security number one, and that's that's obvious everywhere. That people were relaxed, they weren't paranoid, they weren't stressed. You know, was the place up to speed?" Well, compared to Kabul, yeah, it was up to speed. It was better. Further investigative research revealed that there's a lot of truck traffic that goes at Herat, if you're, if you're not familiar with it, it's on the western side of uh, Afghanistan, and it borders uh, Iran. So there's a lot of traffic there, uh, traffic going in, traffic coming out. And for every truck that went in and out, they would pay 400 bucks to, uh, I think it was Fahim Khan ran at that time. So he had... He had money. He could pay his security guys. He could have uh, repairs made on the infrastructure, which he did. And uh, it was just day and night. Well, there was a series of these guys uh, at the beginning of the war when the Northern Alliance finally came down and kicked ass. And uh, the State Department didn't like the idea of, or the Department of Defense at the time, warlords. They said, oh, we can't have warlords. We can't support warlords. What's the world going to think? Well, what they failed to realize is that each warlord was from a different area of the country. And they were the power that controlled that area from top to bottom because they used the same approach. You fuck up here and you're going to disappear. Okay, so people didn't do it. Was there infighting? There's always infighting. You know? well, that's the nature of it. They had enough people loyal to them that, that kept them alive. But the, you know, the, the vernacular was, hmm, warlord. Can't have that. Which, the world can't be looking at the United States as supporting warlords because the mere term is a negative term, you know? And that was, in my opinion, the time to, we could have pulled out in March uh, 2002, April maybe, when the weather's nice, and, uh, and leave it to them. Let them handle their own shit. They didn't necessarily want ISIS in there. They didn't want the, to take the heat for, for that stuff. And if we were gone, they, the only people they'd be pissed off at is each other. And that would be the greatest time to leave because, yeah, I got friends at the PCS to Arlington over this war, you know, and, and other guys that spent a year more in, uh, in Walter Reed, you know, trying to get fixed up from getting smoked. And, uh, you know, I really hold that against the, the higher leadership. And my answer to the higher leadership right now is that if you're an 06 or above, you're fired. Get out of the Pentagon. All you 04s and 03s, you take you take his desk, start sorting it out, because I know you guys have been outside the wire. These other schmucks, no, not at all. And I'm sure I'm hurting somebody's feelings out there, but I could really give a shit. That's my take on how to fix Afghanistan. <laughs> but at this point, it ain't going to get fixed because all the equipment that they own right now due to this idiotic, incompetent withdrawal, yeah, they own that shit now. And all that technology is going to get taken apart by the Chinese. And uh, Wow. Now, if the Chinese come in there and take it over, uh, they have a different approach to nation building. 
Yeah, you don't do what I tell you. We're going to kill you. We're going to just bomb you into the Stone Age, and they'll do it. So I think they will have the attention of the locals because of their methods of war, fighting war. And they did not let us fight the war, really. They wanted us to do nation building, which is, you know, we, we never trained nation building. We trained combat. That's what we do. And uh, you, you're preventing us from doing that or having to explain why we need to do that. And then it gets voted on by people who are politically correct or, you know, sensitive or some, some other bullshit excuse for not fighting. Yeah, it's debilitating mentally. Yeah. Okay, so final question. What is your thoughts on the withdrawal from Afghanistan and how the U.S. government handled the entire situation and your thoughts on the, you know, the Afghanis and their response to the situation? Well, this goes back to uh, fire all the generals. Mike Milley, you're fired. Austin, you're fired. Secretary of State, you're fired. Uh, all you guys are fired because that was the biggest clusterfuck I have ever seen e- executed, perpetrated on, on the American citizens. They don't have a head count. Who's in the country? We don't know. They're giving numbers from 10,000 to 15,000 people. You don't know who's there. You don't know where they are. Not everybody's in Kabul, no. But why would you, why would you move the military out, out of Bagram, and then expect the you know, the civilians to orderly organize and, and move out out of Kabul International Airport, about a half hour south of Bagram, or 40 minutes, depends on the time of year. And uh, it, we've been there for 20 goddamn years. There are people that know how to withdraw, how to collapse an, an operation. Oh, man. So I'm pretty hostile. I'm pretty hot under the collar right now because... I see these leaders, they're not leaders, they could lead a troop of Boy Scouts to a whorehouse successfully, but uh, perpetuating this, this big lie about how everything's under control and, yeah, that's, everything's great. Oh, man. I mean, give me two privates in the range of battalion. They could have organized that withdrawal in a, in a better, more, more functional manner than these clowns, but I'm pretty, pretty hostile. Now we have the refugee problem. Well, he can go both ways on that. We had an interpreter, and it, we had him for years. And uh, it took at least three years for us to get his paperwork. And that was, that was not submitted once. That was like a constant follow-up, follow-up, write more letters, follow-up, get people to do north-south. They have a change of command or something, and then you're back at square one. And long story short, this guy went out on missions with us, wrist his ass. Does he deserve a ticket out of there? Goddamn right he does. Absolutely. And he finally got it. I found this out years later that he actually made it out with his, uh, his mother and his father. He's uh, driving a cab in San Francisco. <laughs> Not the greatest job in the world, but, you know, I guess his, his biggest challenge is to avoid the, the human feces in the street uh, as opposed to dodging roadsides and ambushes. And the, uh, the rest of the crew... I knew a guy who worked in the U and uh, for the United Nations or for the embassy, and I need to get on a plane too. Well, I, I don't think we need to get everybody out like that. I mean, that's their goddamn country. You know, there's other places for them. Send them back to Pakistan. You know, 
They can go to the Emirates. They can go some other place where it's safer. But to bring them all here to the States, I don't think they all deserve it here in the States. I think those guys that work with us, the one on those patrols with us, those cats, risk their lives. Yeah, they've earned that right. But if you don't have those kind of credentials, piss off. I'm sure there's people crying over this one. But understanding the population is critical for anything. And uh, I think the people that want to issue this blanket, come on in, they don't understand the people. I saw a picture of a C-17 loaded with like 800 souls in that thing. And I think I saw two or three women in that plane. The rest of them were <laughs> males of military age. <laughs> Do you really want to bring those guys here? Do you know who's in that plane? I'm sure those guys got vetted, just a cursory vet. Uh, just It's so disjointed, so dysfunctional, so screwed up that it's uh, it, it's just unbelievable it's unbelievable that uh, with all the time they've had to pull out of here that it was this this screwed up and i just don't understand tactically why why would you collapse the only thing keeping the taliban at bay was was airstrikes because they knew they can they can initiate a firefight but as soon as that guy gets that tech he gets on that that radio set buddy i'm gonna put some scunning on you an A-10 comes down, whatever comes down, they're going to rip you a new asshole. And uh, once that stuff was not there, what do you think they're walking around Chicken Street, Flower Street, you know, clubbing people over their heads and shaking them down, and, you know, and worse. Mm, thanks. Thanks, Biden. Thanks a lot. Great, great work. You're fired. Um, earlier you were talking about how at Bagram, the, the Taliban are vetting people who are trying to leave. Can you uh, explain to the audience, especially those who have you know, never been to Afghanistan or civilians, and uh, they don't quite understand the full picture of what's going on over there? Yeah, uh, for, for all the FOBs, uh, and there were, there were a bunch of them all over the place, uh, Sharona, uh, Black Lions, and uh, there was just there was FOBs and cops all over the place, and the FOB is a staging area for the combat outposts. Combat outposts live a very Spartan lifestyle out there, but they're the ones that go outside the wire, interact with the locals, engage with the locals, either friendly or unfriendly. And uh, when you establish rapport with people, and you find out people have skill sets, they have knowledge or whatever, and you want to incorporate them into your mission, there's a uh, there's what they call a bat and hides process. There's also a, a vetting process where these guys are, are study. You take their DNA stuff. You log them in a book. You have a, you know accountability. Uh, we'd, we'd stop guys. Shit, we were up in uh, where the hell was that? It wasn't Tora Bora. It was some other place uh, where we were. There was a there was a, a supply route coming in from Pakistan, and it, it was they were just pumping all kinds of shit, you know, into the into the country that was killing GIs, Marines. So we wanted to go up there and crush that. So uh, we went up there and told the folks, hey, you know, have a nice day. We're, we're here to, to meet, meet and greet everybody. And, and then uh, we want to start a project here, an agricultural project here, and we want to recruit for that, <laughs> for that project. Does anybody want to work? Yeah, you know, guys show up with their AKs and everything else, and uh, we did a bat and hides on them, collected all that shit, and that was going on all over the country. So you had pretty thorough DNA record of these people and that played into uh, 
the guys that make the roadsides and the V bids and all that stuff, we have their DNA recorded somewhere and you clean up a site and there's a, it's got any DNA left at the site, either in the car or on the site. You could trace them there and then you can work backwards on that. Well, those records are now all of those records, which were held in the, the embassy and, uh, and, when they left Bagram, that stuff rolled down to the embassy. So the embassy was the caretaker for that information. Well, all those, uh, all those folders, that information, all that stuff is in the hands of the, uh, the Taliban. They know exactly who is working for the embassy, you know. And that stuff's supposed to be close hold, you know, because those guys live in the community and they work in and around the embassy or in Bagram or one of the FOBs. And all that stuff, it was a centralized uh, location. It's, it's just like having a hit list. They have their own hit list now with uh, you know, with all the information they need to uh, run them down, and that's exactly what's going on now. Not being reported, but guaranteed there's going to be, that population is going to drop by uh, quite a few. And that's uh, how they issue passes, you know. you got to get vetted, and then they, they run us through. I give it to the squints and the agency guys, and they, they, they do their their shtick and they come back going yeah this guy he's got a history of being with this group or that group and uh, he gets blocked or gets locked up or whatever doesn't doesn't get the the green light or the pass or the job but uh all that stuff is 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 out there due to this unbelievably screwed up withdrawal unbelievable Uh, i really astoundingly horrific whoever they want to take credit for this that they need to be fired i mean fired in for the military guys court-martialed for gross negligence absolutely gross negligence it's, it's infuriating well that will be the conclusion of our first episode um thank you whitey for coming on uh if you guys like what whitey had to say he definitely will be on in future episodes so uh, y'all can look forward to that but yeah Thank you all for listening for our Cut Above the Rest, and we'll be back hopefully in a few days with another episode. And if you don't like what I had to say, save the hate mail. I don't need it. <laughs> Basically, go fuck yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in English, yes. Yeah. So you were assigned to protect President Karzai. 